This is The Future of What. I'm Portia Sabin, and today we're talking about transparency in the music industry. Picture, if you will, an apple. It's red or green. It's crunchy and juicy. It's a very nice apple. And that apple has a market value. Now, picture a change in the world that results in everyone deciding that apples should be free. In that scenario, what happens to the people who plant and grow and harvest the apples? They still have a product, but they can't get paid in the way they used to. Now, picture that that apple is in demand everywhere. Every time you turn on your TV and see a commercial, there's that apple. When you download an app for your phone, there's that apple. In the movies, in video games, in restaurants, there's that apple. In 2015, the music business is kind of like this. Everyone wants to use music because music sets moods. It creates emotions, it makes people want to dance. In other words, it has value. Yet the marketplace says it's free. This is the dilemma that people who make music find themselves in today. It still costs the same to record and press and promote an album, yet we can't sell this product like we used to. So those of us who produce the music, the artists and labels, have to wonder how long we can keep this up. Is there a future in music or what? The word on the street about the music industry has been the same for years. Labels don't pay artists. In fact, some people wonder why there are still labels. Meanwhile, label owners say... They weren't relevant, and we wouldn't get 100 demos a week. But are labels transparent? A recent study released by the Berklee College of Music appears to support this stereotype. But is it true? We discuss this right now on The Future of What? Panos Panay is the founding managing director of the Berkeley Institute of Creative Entrepreneurship, and he joins us today to talk about a year-long study authored by Rethink Music that's been getting a lot of publicity. Panos, welcome to the future of what? Thank you so much, Portia. So your organization, Berkeley ICE, supports Rethink Music, which wrote this study concerning transparency in the music industry. Can you summarize the findings for us? Yeah, sure. First, I should clarify that Rethink Music is an initiative of the Institute. So think of it as the think tank part of the Institute that looks into the future of music, hence Rethink Music. We see ourselves as being the preeminent institution of contemporary music in the world. And every year we graduate a thousand new graduates that go into this industry. And we feel that we have a duty to our students to not only educate them about the industry, but also play an active role in the discussions of where the industry goes and how we make it into a viable ecosystem for everybody. Uh, in terms of the report, what we're finding is that we have an industry whose economic model and consumption model has completely changed in the last 10 years. We've gone from an industry where uh, it was a largely uh, an ownership uh, model to a pay-as-you-go model. We went to an industry that's gone from uh, dollars to, to largely uh, an industry of, of, of cents and sometimes fractions of pennies. But at the same time, even though there's been enormous technological and consumption changes in the industry, we've also seen that the underlying infrastructure of the industry in terms of all the intermediaries involved in it hasn't really changed. So we're asking some basic questions. Can new technology advances help bring transparency to the way that money flows from a consumer to a creator? Can it expedite the way that this money flows from consumer to creators? Are all of the intermediaries that have been historically part of this music business necessary, especially as we've seen that the amount of money that a consumer is willing to pay for music uh, has, has decreased? And then lastly, we want to challenge 
perhaps a culture that has existed in the industry and maybe even a culture that exists in Silicon Valley around the way that creators ought to be treated. And that's effectively what we're addressing in the report. So I started this radio show as a way to educate musicians and other people about just what really goes on in the music industry, because I think it's very opaque. People don't really get it. So how do you think this report fulfills that mission and is educational for musicians? Well, first of all, we feel that musicians need, and not just musicians, but creative beings in, in general, they need to feel that they have to be a part of this conversation. So to some degree, perhaps some of the controversy that the report has done has fulfilled a bit of the objective of, well, let's just make it sort of a big enough topic that musicians and, and creators pay attention. To some degree, I feel that there's been a revolution happening the last decade or so, as I've mentioned, but the creative class has been largely absent from these conversations until recently. I think that our report, which has also stimulated an op-ed by David Byrne in the New York Times. So we think that by virtue of who we are, by virtue of the fact that we're putting something out there and we're putting our reputation behind it as an academic institution, that we're unearthing, bringing to the surface issues that are often missed by the creative class. Just so everyone understands what we're talking about, transparency is basically allowing artists and labels to see where their money is coming from. And as the report points out, the technology exists to do this. But the report also mentions that a lot of streaming services don't want to invest in transparent reporting and accounting systems, which seems like a fundamental problem. It's not just a streaming service issue, because if you talk to any of the players, they'll say, well, it's not really us, it's them. Uh -huh. <laughs> there is really no easily accessible or publicly accessible authenticated database that you can go and say, okay, I played this particular song by, you name it, Gloria Stefan, Taylor Swift. And because of the way that the creative process happens, without making it too complicated, you have multiple parties involved with every piece of, every particular sort of creative piece, uh, whether it's a song, whether it's an album. So often the streaming services say, well, we don't always have an easy way to know who to pay. So that's one issue right there, that there is no publicly accessible database where you know, okay, for every creative piece out there, the minute that it's streamed or played, you know exactly who you should get paid and who should get paid what. So that's one issue. The other issue is that on the label side or often on the publisher side, you're looking at, at an accounting infrastructure that's arcane at best. So even the way that that money flows, the way that it's accounted for, distributed, is fairly antiquated. You know, now labels may say and publishers may say, gee, the music industry has declined, we've been decimated, we had to cut staff and so forth and so on. On the other end, I think you have, whenever you look at situations where you have lack of transparency, you always have to ask yourself, well, okay, are there incentives or disincentives associated with transparency or opaqueness to exist? Well, unlike situations where, let's say, you have abandoned property, that if somebody doesn't claim it, say it's a bank account, somebody dies, it's not claimed for, well, that abandoned property goes to the state. In the music industry, if you can't find who to pay, at the end of the year, that money gets distributed to largely the labels or publishers, which more often than not, are owned by record labels based on market share. So you don't really have an incentive there for people to become more transparent because guess what? Money that they don't pay out effectively becomes their property. So the objective of the report for us is not, gee, let's point the fingers out at labels. I mean, 
this concept of a black box is a fairly known issue within the industry. Unfortunately, you have a series of actors involved in the way that this money flows where they all have their own individual incentives or disincentives to expedite the flow of this money or to track down the rightful owners. So for better or for worse, you have an infrastructure there that partially by design, partially because of antiquated systems, partially because of culture, let's face it, hasn't always been quick to, let's say, expedite the flow and, and rightfully track down the rightful creators and, and recipients of these payments. Now, you may say, why is this urgent today? I mean, hasn't this problem always existed? Look, in one way or another, the problem has always existed. The proliferation of streaming services has only exacerbated the issue just because of the complexity involved in the way that the money is collected and attributed. But, you know, the other issue around the paper that we bring up is that today you also have technology that should make these problems go away pretty easily, number one. Number two, there is a lot of discussion in the media about, gee, streaming services have killed the record business and artists are not making any money. Well, again, you're, you're looking at two issues there. Number one, yes, let's re-examine the economic models of these streaming services. Let's re-examine the motivations of these streaming services, fine. Let's also not forget that less than 10 years ago, we were staring at the abyss with respect to piracy. So we should look at streaming services, not so much as the enemy, but ultimately as entities that have helped legalize the consumption of music. So can we find a way to all work together to make their economic models viable? But then because of the way that the economics trickle down to the artists, I feel we should also examine the role of all the intermediaries and say, well, are all these people who have their hands in the way that this money is distributed and they all take a piece, are they still relevant in 2015? Are they all needed? Maybe they were needed in 1965, in 1975, in 1995, maybe then in 2005. But are they relevant in 2015, especially with the technology that we have? Panos Panay is the founding managing director of the Berkeley Institute of Creative Entrepreneurship. Panos, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Portia. Coming up on The Future of What, we talk to musician and blogger David Lowry about his take on this study. I'm Portia Sabin. Stay with us. now to musician and blogger David Lowry. So you've written several posts about this Berkeley Rethink Music study. Can you tell us who funded the study and why that's important? It appears from the, you know, the statements on the report that it's funded by Cobalt Music, which is a music publishing administration sort of company. But what's interesting about Cobalt is Cobalt is at least somewhat funded, certainly has a fairly large investment from Google through their Google Ventures. So when we see that, 
that begins to make us somewhat suspicious because, you know, Google owns YouTube. And if there's any place where we're lacking transparency in the music business is what the heck goes on with YouTube? (laughs) What are we being paid for? How are we being paid? How is that calculated, et cetera, et cetera? So this study focuses on the money that's being paid out to artists by labels and publishers, but not really on where that money is coming from, as you said. And in my opinion, transparency should begin there. Yes, absolutely. That's basically what we're getting at, is that we realize there is always going to be some sort of black box money at the PROs, BMI and ASCAP, at the labels and distributors and such, because with the number of songs out there, there's always going to be some money that doesn't get assigned somewhere. But if you look at the grand scheme of things, that is a smaller black box than than what we see at the digital distributors. What I'm concerned about is that there's actually more of an issue with transparency on digital services side, like how are they generating revenue? What how much are their expenses in generating this revenue? Which ads, for instance, on the ad-supported side of things in Spotify and YouTube, which ads get assigned to the artist revenue streams and which ones don't? Because this isn't totally clear and there's no real information on this. Right. And my favorite part about what you said in one of your posts had to do with, you know, the the difference between a black box, let's say, that SoundExchange would have had, and we're about to talk to Mike Huppy, the president of SoundExchange, Uh the the black box that that SoundExchange was dealing with was money that came in and that they were unable to find the proper place for. But they have no incentive. They have no stake in holding on to that money. They would like to pay it out to artists and labels. But with something like Spotify, let's just take Spotify as an example, with, with a streaming service, As you point out, they shouldn't even have this problem if they were doing their licensing properly in the first place. Right. One of the problems with why there's a black box at the streaming services is that they sort of, at least in my case, it looks like they just put my entire song catalog up there without really checking to see if they had licenses for everything. Like some things they had licenses for, because some of my music is published by a major label and just or administered by a major label, but some of it isn't. And so in my case, it looks like they just put it out there without obtaining the licenses first. So that makes it very difficult for them to pay, right? Now, they appear to be retroactively going back and trying to find some of these <laughs> or to s- obtain some of these licenses but i i know that there's you know there's there's a good 50 or 60 of my songs out there that they're, they're using without a proper license so that would make it very difficult for them to pay me there's another issue in there though also as well see when we're told that, for instance, like 50% of the revenue or 70% of the revenue or 60% of the revenue, depending on the service, is being paid out to rights holders. There's also usually a caveat in there that it's minus the fees that are associated with sort of, sort of the, the fees associated with obtaining this advertising, right? There's, there's 
probably fees paid out to brokers who, you know, sort of essentially collect advertisers who want to advertise on these services. And there is zero transparency there. We don't know who those brokers are, what these expenses are that are charged back against the advertising revenue. And sometimes, at least I suspect in the case of YouTube, it's essentially Google's advertising wing paying itself and deducting expenses before the revenue is sort of put into the pie to be divided up between rights holders and YouTube. So you see what I'm saying? Like there's there's also this sort of non-transparency in what those expenses are to obtain the advertising that seem to be fairly significant. Absolutely. As you say in one of your posts, you say 70% of X. Well, that doesn't help us because we don't actually know what that X is. I mean, it, that's an important part. And that's something that, you know, that's why people have record deals. I mean, I think it's an interesting report. I, you know, I don't want to be 100% negative to it because one of the things we just spoke to Panos Panay, who works for uh-huh. um, Berkeley ICE, and he uh-huh. was saying that one of the reasons they published this report was to bring issues that are important for musicians to know about into the open. And listen, you can't fault that. I think transparency is an important issue. I think that more musicians need to understand the business side, et cetera. But there are some very problematic parts of this report, one of which is that right now we've got a situation where people don't have access to information about how much money services like YouTube are making in advertising revenue. Right. Even Wall Street has complained about this. Right, when Wall impossible. Street <laughs> is saying that YouTube and Spotify and all these services are completely non-transparent, you know, you can't get a blacker pot calling a kettle black. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the ultimate. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, the, this call for transparency, I think, is, is wonderful. I think there's some good things in the report. But I just don't understand how you can do that without also trying to, you know, shed light onto the digital services. And is this because essentially they're funded in some way through YouTube, Google, or that, that, you know, at least there's some sort of financial connection there? Is that why that was omitted? Was it uncomfortable for the authors to do that? Was it just an oversight? But, you know, it's something that's that's worth questioning. Well, my main interest in discussing this study on this show is that I believe we have a serious PR problem in the music industry, and we have for years. And that is Mm -hmm. just, you know, that this study went for the low-hanging fruit, which is, ooh, you know, labels take artists' money. Well, you know, tell us something we don't know. I have a label, too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an artist, and I also have a label. We do take artists' money, but it's usually because we've spent money, like, promoting that album or, you know, marketing or, you know, hiring a publicist or tour support and things like that, right? Right. We do take, speaking as a label owner, we do take artists' money, but... Right, but um, there's a difference between recouping your expenses and taking your agreed-upon portion, which you have a contract with the artist for, which is 50% or 60% or whatever you have agreed to, and stealing money, you know, taking money away that should be rightfully... For the artist. Right. And I think that, you know, the problem I have with this report is that's how it was publicized was, you know, 20 to 50 percent of money does not make it to artists. 
And that's just completely misleading and unfair. Well, first of all, that quote is based on anonymous sources without actually any data to back it up. I don't doubt that 10% doesn't make it to artists. I mean, it's a messy business. (laughs) There's a lot of rights holders out there and stuff like that. But at the same time, if it was really 50%, you're talking billions of dollars in fraud. I'm not sure you have an, you know, kind of an Enron style fraud going on here and nobody's calling their lawyers or their accountants or even, you know, the attorney generals and stuff like that. So again, I'm also suspect of that 20 to 50% figure. It seems high to me and it's not really supported with anything. So uh, I, I don't know. It's not supported with any data and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's just attributed to anonymous sources, which yes. is all, always suspect. It is. It is. It's very, and the, the whole report has sort of a problem of authorship as well, where it's like, where are the authors? There are no names on this report, which <laughs> right. is Right. Did your last guest, did he shed any light on who authored the report? Because it's not clear from the report itself who authored it and Nope, he didn't, although he was quite supportive of the report, and he certainly was taking ownership of it. He wasn't taking authorship. but yeah. right. So the one last thing I wanted to ask you about quickly is that early in the report, the authors, whoever they are, quote someone as saying, streaming services have no incentive to invest in transparent reporting and accounting systems, which are expensive. And I just thought, what an interesting, like, no incentives? Well, they they have a fiduciary responsibility to pay those whose music they're using. I, I think that's that's a that's a crazy pants statement <laughs> right there. Um, because I mean, say I'm a songwriter, right? I didn't ask Spotify to get into the business. Oh, okay, we'll distribute your songs. Oh God, now we have to figure out how to account for these songwriters. <laughs> they begged us and begged <laughs> us. Please, please. Stream they our begged music. us to get into this business. I mean right. we didn't beg them to get into this business. <laughs> right. And are you telling me that wait a minute, are you telling me that the computer technology industry can't <laughs> solve this problem? Right. <laughs> if they can't <laughs> and they want artists to solve it, I mean, right. come on, we can't even keep the van clean. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you know, so so that's a little that's a little crazy there too. It's like they have no. Well, I, I think they do have an incentive in just that they're in the business and they need to account for this stuff. But but that does that does illustrate the attitude. I mean, it's sort of like what I've shown with my catalog is that. You know, there are a lot of songs they're using and somebody hasn't done the licensing properly and they could have got a a compulsory license using the federal statutes anyway. But that hasn't even been done, which makes me want to turn around and, you know, the first place I'm going to look if there's a problem with transparency is at the digital services, which clearly haven't obtained all the proper licenses from my catalog. Well, right. Exactly. And the fact that we can't have a conversation about how much a stream is worth because that stream value changes depending on, you know, the territory and the time of day. And I don't know whether it's ad supported. I mean, there's so many Mm -hmm. if, if, ifs 
that we can't even really tell you what the value of a stream is. is. Right. So we, so we don't even know if it's a good deal for us. Or not. Right. From an individual <laughs> artist's viewpoint, it's really difficult uh, to figure out if the streaming services are a good value for us or not. Right. If the, because, you know, we can't even tell what we're being paid, paid. Right. Correct. For a while there, here's another interesting thing too. For a while there, some of the labels that I've talked to were, I'm not sure how they were licensing, if they were licensing directly with Spotify, if they were going through distributors or what, but they could see the difference between the paid streams and the free ad supported streams and see the difference. And then other labels are not able to do that, and they just have it all lumped together, right? Right. So there's a very basic bit of transparency that we could use right there, which is like, can we see the difference between how much I'm getting paid per spin on the paid service versus the ad-supported service? Right. But because, for instance, in the case of Spotify, it's an IPO-driven company. It's going to want have as many users as possible and they do not have an incentive to split between you know the, the free and the paid tier right, right? Absolutely. david lowry is a musician and blogger you can find his writing at the tricordist.com david thanks so much for being on our show thanks for doing the show Welcome back to The Future of What. I'm Portia Sabin. Today we're talking about transparency in the music industry. Our next guest is Michael Huppy, president and CEO of SoundExchange. Mike, thanks for coming back to The Future of What. Portia, happy to be back. So can you explain for those who don't know how SoundExchange was created and why? Sure. SoundExchange was created by the industry to help organize and, and make sense of and administer part of the new digital economy. We are at the center of a lot of digital radio services here in the U.S. We have over 2,500 services that pay us for the use of music on digital radio, and then we pay it out 50-50 to artists and record labels. We pay it out quicker and more efficiently than anybody else in the world. That was very concise. That's perfect. So some of the players, those 2,500 companies that you're talking about, are like Pandora, that kind of a thing? Exactly. So, you know, it's the internet radio services like Pandora and iHeartRadio. Obviously, there's also satellite radio, uh, Sirius XM, but also other things such as music choice on your cable television and things of that nature. So it's really a variety of audio-only streaming radio products. So it does not include download products or things like that. And specifically, these are all the non-interactive services, correct? Exactly. So the lean back experience where you have either program curated and fed to you, or perhaps it's customized to your taste, but it's not on demand for that. You have to go straight to the record label, not through SoundExchange. So the Berkeley report that we've been talking about today cites SoundExchange as an example of one of the players who's getting it right in the music industry today. And by getting it right, I mean getting money from services to labels and artists with a good amount of transparency. Can you tell us what you guys have been doing over the last 10 years to achieve this? Sure. And, you know, obviously transparency is a huge focus for us. It's something that we, we pride ourselves on. And we've spent the better part of a decade getting to the space where we are now. And there's lots of things we do to promote transparency. First and foremost, we are huge proponents of data and open data and, and accurate data 
throughout the entire industry. We are pushing everybody to make sure their metadata is correct, report their metadata to us so that we can help make the money flow the right way in this digital radio space. Another thing that we've done is we have created what I think is probably the best sound recording repertoire database in the world. We have over 4,000 rights owners, mostly labels, but really anybody who owns master rights. We've had them submit to us their metadata, and we ha now have you know somewhere north of 25 million tracks, 18 million unique ISRCs, and we handle all the conflicts that come out from that. You know, we have multiple people claiming the same track. We work out the, the conflicts and figure out who the actual owner is. So we've done a lot to clean up data. We are Another thing we're doing is we are pushing the use of ISRC. I know the Berkeley report and, quite frankly, a lot of other reports have talked about ISRC for, uh, you know, for your listeners, the International Sound Recording Code, that was supposed to be the international serial number for every recording so we could all track exactly what recordings are being used. It has not been implemented perfectly, and it's not been utilized around the world in the same way. So we are pushing very hard to make ISRC the standard, to have services report ISRC to us. And we've done a lot of other things. We're building a new software platform that's very open and flexible. We've created a portal that all our payees can go to to massage and play with and, uh, and do analysis on their data. And I could go on and on. I've probably already talked too long. <laughs> well, one thing I want to go back to is how you said that basically you guys have worked hard with the services who report to you to help clean up the data. And so people understand that means a service like Pandora or a service like iHeartRadio, you're basically dealing with data where like a DJ, for example, would write down what songs he or she played. But the problem is, what if that information they write down is incomplete, right? Right. And it, it varies. You know, sometimes it's a DJ writing down. Sometimes it's more sophisticated. And, and some of these services are actually getting feeds from the labels now. So there's the whole gamut of how a service might get the metadata. But the data that comes into us is far from perfect, I would say. In many cases, it's pretty bad. Sometimes it's pretty egregious, you know, where you just have flat out wrong data or blank fields. Other times, there are things that might be understandable. You know, for instance, if you have a compilation CD that's distributed by label A, but the sound recording on it was owned by label B, we all know that label B is the sound recording owner and the, and the rights owner. But many people would look at whoever put out the compilation as the rights owner. So we often get incorrect ownership information. We have misspellings. You know, we sometimes have just a variety of errors like that. And part of what our job is, a very important part of our job, is to take that data that comes in from the services in far less than perfect format and do our best to clean it up so the right people get paid. Because, you know, you were talking earlier with one of your guests about the incentive for services to build these immense systems to, you know, to properly deliver data. And I think, you know, your discussion hit it on the head. Services are about pushing out music and doing everything as cheaply as possible in order to maximize their profit. And that means that they may have less incentive than, say, SoundExchange does to make sure the data is accurate. Right. Well, short of sending a big guy in brass knuckles over to a radio station, right. how, do you, <laughs> how do you provide an incentive to people to clean up their data? Well, if they use the statutory license that we administer, which you know those, those 2,500 labels do, they're kind of on the honor system when they initially send the data. So you know, every month we get from all those services, we get data and payments 
and we we go through this very complicated process that I just described to you. But a couple things. First off, we we have the ability to audit, and we always have six or eight or ten. You know, we, we always have a fair number of audits going to try to check in on the services and make sure that they're reporting properly. And then, you know, to be honest, we we try to work with them at the operational level. We have we obviously have our commercial differences with these services. The most obvious example, we're in a rate court right now just debating what rates they should pay to use the music. You can imagine we have different views on that. <laughs> but but aside from stuff like that, you know, at the end of the day, these people are in a way they're business partners because, you know, we want digital radios to succeed. We want all of these services to do well. We just want to make sure they pay fairly for the music and we want to make sure they report properly um, so that we can pay it out to the right people. And so, you know, really at an operational level, we have pretty good relationships, especially with a lot of the bigger services and trying to work through things like data cleanup and trying to make it the most efficient process. So since you guys are compiling this very clean, good database of all these songs, do you think there's another application for that database that you're putting together? There absolutely, there are many applications of what we could do. I mean, and and our thinking is, Anything we can do to better the metadata in the whole industry is good for everybody. You know, the good news is we're a nonprofit, right? So all we will ever take out of the revenue stream is, is what it takes to, to run our, our operations. But if we can do something to just help the money flow better in all parts of the industry or in all parts of the recording side of the industry, then, you know, may, maybe it's helping do data exercises. Maybe it's do matching with certain services to try to find artists or labels who haven't signed up. Perhaps it's matching up ISRCs to the actual recording and making that information public so people can come and do an ISRC lookup and figure out which labels attached to it. Or imagine in a perfect world what we've all talked about, and, and I think you've probably talked about before on earlier shows, is you know, imagine if you could find a place where you would marry up the ISRC and the ISWC, which is the basically a serial number for the song. Imagine one place where you could go and get all you needed to know, recording, publishing, who produced it, everything about a particular recording. That would be a very good thing for the industry. That would. Mike Huppy is president and CEO of Sound Exchange. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Portia. Always a pleasure to be with you. This is The Future of What, a show about the music industry. I'm Portia Sabin, president of the independent label Kill Rockstars. If you missed any of the first part of this show or want to hear past shows, you can go to killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat or find us at the iTunes store. I've been away, been in some kind of bite.
Jeremy Devine is the founder and owner of Temporary Residence Limited. Jeremy, thanks for joining us on The Future of What? Thanks for having me. So today we're talking about transparency in the music industry. And I wanted to talk to you because you, like me, run a small independent label. And paying royalties to your artists is a very important part of your business, correct? Sure. Yeah. It is. Very much so. Now, do you do the royalties yourself? I do. I'm doing them right now. <laughs> As we speak. Your hands As are on the keyboard. Speak, I, I am doing them right now. This interview is a quote-unquote early dinner break from royalty statements. <laughs> there you go. See? So how many times a year do you do royalties? Four times. Yes. You and I are the same. We are two crazy people in this industry, but yes. You I, do them quarterly? I do them quarterly, and I do it myself. Yeah. I don't know anybody else that does them quarterly. Now I do. Yeah, I, just the two of us. That's awesome. How did you Everybody get started that, doing that? that I ever talked to, because it seemed right. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a great reason for it. I started the label to put out my own music, and getting paid every six months as an artist, seemed really tough. But I think, honestly, it was just I didn't know any better. I started it, and I based a lot of what we were doing off of Touch and Go and Discord, and I knew that those guys paid out 50-50 net profit splits, but I don't think I even knew what their schedule was or any, any details or even how they accounted. I just, all that stuff I sort of learned as I went, and uh, the quarterly thing just seemed right to me. And then it actually turned into kind of a boon over the years because we would start working with bigger artists who we would find out that one of the tipping points for them for working with us versus working with another label is because we account every quarter instead of account every six months so they don't have to make one payment every six months stretch for six months. Yeah. And it becomes more reliable as a lot of them get older and they start having families, mortgages, and all that kind of stuff. And, and then, you know, when they're not touring all the time, then it becomes a thing where the royalties from us become a more significant part of their monthly and semi-annual and seasonal income. So it's made a lot more sense. It is a lot more work for us than I thought about when I first started doing it, but it's an, kind of an impossible thing to go backwards and, uh, and try and sell the idea to artists of doing it every six months now that they've gotten used to 20 years of it being every three Absolutely. And also, I don't know about you, but I find that if I were to try to do it every six months instead of every three months, I actually forget how to do it. Yeah, no, I did it. We have a, a handful of artists who we only work with in North America, and so we license the records from another territory, and the license agreements call for us to account every six months. So we only do those records every six months, to, you know, to be in accordance with the agreement. And I go through exactly what you're talking about. Like when I go through it, I realize like I I don't remember what's happening here. <laughs> yep. Like I don't remember what's happening with this account because it feels like it's been forever. Right. Since right. since this is happening, and it's, there's no issue with getting anything wrong because it's all hard numbers that are sitting in front of me. It's just I have to account for twice as many of them, like twice as much activity because I'm only doing it twice a year as opposed to four. Right. And I realize it happens every time. And without fail, all of the six-month accounts are the ones that I end up doing last because <laughs> they're in a totally different rhythm right. and pace than yeah. the others. It's and true. so I end up burning through everything else first, and then I wait until the end. It's like that scene in Huey's Big Adventure where he keeps coming back to the snakes. 
<laughs> and he realizes that he has to save the snakes, but he'll save them after he saves all the other cuter animals. <laughs> yep, cuter animals first. Totally. So the three-month accounts are my cuter animals. Yes, they are. I totally agree. So do you use software, or did you just sort of cobble something together to do your royalties? Like, how did you come up with your system? In the way that somebody, that an artist who loves to make stuff and doesn't want to account would make. Like, I wanted <laughs> to account. Like, I wanted, basically, as somebody who's, like, not passionate about accounting. Gotcha. You know, yes. I'm, I'm passionate about numbers. I love numbers, and I have a weird fixation on them. But I'm, I'm not passionate about accounting. I do it because it's a thing that has to be done, and I refuse to do it wrong. But I don't enjoy doing it. And so the, the system is set up, and we're actually in the middle of, well, probably at the very beginning of designing everything from scratch. Like, we're going to overhaul everything and start doing it. Basically, automate as much as humanly possible because the ingestion of it, in, and this is probably a decent segue, the ingestion of it in digital music realm mm-hmm. is becoming really taxing. Yes. You know, like, it's, it's, it's getting increasingly overwhelming because of how many different revenue streams there are. Right. So tell us exactly, yeah, where do you get your information from? Do you have a distributor that feeds you this info or yeah, do you have we do. direct so, deals? So we're distributed by SC Distribution, who we've worked with for, I don't know, maybe 17 years. I mean, whenever they started, 97 or 98. So they distribute our physical and our digital. And they account to us once a month. And the way that they account to us is split up into two streams, basically. It's physical sales and digital sales. And then we have two people in the office here, myself and then my coworker, Tommy. And Tommy does all of the digital because he's our digital content manager. Mm-hmm. So he handles all of the digital accounting. And then I handle all the digital accounting. And then he gives me the digital accounts as summaries. And then I include those summaries into our sort of grand summary statement that goes to each artist. Right. So they're all cross-collateralized, you know, like it all goes into one pot to pay mm-hmm. towards the account. But from a format perspective, you know, I handle the physical from the ingestion period of it, and then he handles the digital from the ingestion. And the physical really hasn't changed in right. the 20 years we've run the label. The digital keeps changing. Right. And it keeps expanding, and it gets... I mean, it's not as mysterious as people, some, like, that I keep seeing... I think you had mentioned before the David Byrne article. It's not mysterious, at least on our end. I mean, what we see is exactly what we end up accounting for. And what we get from SC Distribution is exactly what they get right. from iTunes, and Spotify, and RDO, and Amazon MP3, and all of those things. It's completely transparent. And the David Byrne article that keeps coming up about calling for labels to be more transparent than they have been. I don't, I mean, I'm, you know, not to be mean about it, but I can't read anything else into his statements other than he's working with the wrong people. <laughs> I mean, seriously, the things that he describes, the problem he describes, just sound like either someone with his pedigree shouldn't be working with people who are that disorganized, or if it's malicious, then someone with his pedigree shouldn't be working with crooks. Right. You know, right. and those are the only two options to have the result that he describes. Like if it's if it's actually true that people are being as opaque as they're apparently being in his experience, they're either completely stupid or they're completely crooked. 
Right. Because everything that he talks about, and I read that article to make sure because I knew you had wanted to talk about that idea, the idea of transparency. But, I mean, it's right there in front of you. You know, I mean, it's not, and I'm not saying, I believe him. I believe what he's saying, that he, you know, that, that it's really unclear how the royalties are being split, and it might actually be arbitrary. I don't know. It's not fun to account for that stuff, but it's not hard. Right. You know, like, it's long work. It takes forever to do. It takes us about three weeks, two to three weeks to account, which makes it tough to be accounting every quarter because it means we're spending, you know, a third of, of every quarter just accounting for that quarter. But um, it's just work. It's like it's monotonous and it's not fun, but there's nothing complex about it that, like, that we, you know, there's nothing, it's just numbers. There's right. nothing about it where we're splitting and we're splitting everything 50-50. So. <laughs> it's not rocket science, as you say. If we can figure out how to do it, it's like other people should be able to. Yeah, like we'll, we'll get, you know, a consolidated per track amount of revenue and you that's it right you read it and you're like okay made 464 dollars off of this track right there's that one and you just keep going through and you go through track by track and then you end up with an album and it right. and then it just splits you know like and and all of that stuff is just set up in accounting for us like it's all just it's already just like it's already been designed so right it's just plugging numbers in and then paying artists out and by all means we're always more than happy to send anybody anything that they want as deep in the minutiae as they wish it to go. It just never happens. Right. Let me ask you about that. Yes. So so do you send a paper statement or a digital statement to your artists? So we send hard copy paper statements to anyone who's getting a check. Okay. Because since we already have to mail a check, we're just we mail the hard copy statements so that there's a reference attached to what the check's for. Gotcha. And then otherwise we send, regardless, everybody gets a digital statement that is that same paper statement that's basically just turned into a PDF. Right. That just says, here's everything, you know, here's all your accounting summary. And there's a, a lead up sort of email that I'll send to it that explains everything. And a lot of it's the same exact thing every quarter. It's just defining terms because anyone, you know, it's three months and three months is kind of a long time. If you only get these emails once every three months. Right. It's easy to forget what the terms mean. It's easy to forget where you were the previous quarter, like those kinds of things. So I send out sort of an introductory email that just says hello to everybody and explains what all the terms are and yada, yada, yada. And then it's just a PDF of everything. And it says, if there is money owed to you, a check is in the mail with a hard copy of the statement. Right. And, you know, and then it also says if you need any further details or if you need the statement to essentially be expanded, we're happy to do that. It's just so much work on our end, and we have so many titles that there's no sense in us doing it when it turns out that 99% of the people don't want it. So do you find artists asking you questions about their statements ever? It's pretty rare. I mean, we'll get, there's a handful of artists that will ask, you know, or, or managers on behalf of artists who will ask. But for the most part, A, our statements are intentionally simple. You know, I mean, they're, they're, more or less dummy proof in the sense of like when I designed the statement, I designed it so the statement basically simplifies with each step, simplifies in terms of the way that you read it. So that by the, and that was because early on when we were working with two artists and three artists, a couple of those artists had come from other labels or were currently working in other bands on labels. And they would say, I feel like every time I get this statement, 
I'm out of my element, you know, that I'm, that I need a degree in some sort of business affairs to understand what is happening here. And this was before, this was in the 90s, before like digital was even a thing. I know. And I think I have also received those statements because, of course, we have, for example, licensed songs to major label compilations, stuff like sure. that. And, you know, I think that's probably what the David Byrne article was really talking about is you get these statements and it's completely unclear to you, first off, even what song they're talking about. Like often the name of the song isn't anywhere on the statement. Absolutely. Especially nowadays, we'll basically just have ISRCs. Right. And then just rows of numbers and not connected to anything. And I mean, to me, it's really difficult because the whole point of this radio show is to try to counteract the bad PR that's gone on for so long about, you know, labels are terrible and they just try to steal artists' money. But you have to, you know, it sort of begs the question, guys, if you're going to send out statements that look like that, you're not doing anyone any good. You look like you're trying to steal people's money (laughs) because you're so opaque. I mean, part of it, to me, part of me thinks that the only people who are really stealing that kind of money aren't trying to hide it. I mean, in the sense, like, they don't care. Right. They don't care that, like, they've long, they've long gotten over the, like, sort of cartoonish villain role, you know, of the, <laughs> of the music industry where it's like, this is what we do. You know, we were start like, mu- the, the modern music industry that we know was started by lawyers. And this is what we do. Like, we figure out ways to own everybody's stuff forever mm-hmm. and not pay what it's fairly owed. I mean, that's the whole cheap trick thing years ago with iTunes where, you know, they started finding like breakage and return fees for MP3s on their statement. Right. Right. And it's like, these are all of these weird ways where they can keep screwing you over. And they meaning like not major labels in general, well, probably major labels in general, but these situations that they find, the David Byrne situation, and I, I don't know who, Reprise, I'm not sure who put up Talking Heads, but it's a major label. And so those kinds of situations are the exact wrong example of what a label does, you know, and this is, there's a, that podcast, The Pitch, that you were on, mm-hmm. uh, where they where they asked this sort of, an entire podcast dedicated to what's the point of a record label. Right. And, the examples that they had were really bad, you know, to begin with. And I, and the other thing, and I'm, I really like that podcast. I just think that particular episode didn't really address the fact that in large part, the thing that they said at the beginning that record labels do, record labels still do. Mm-hmm. You know, all the stuff where they're like, they used to pay for a record to be made and pay for the promotion and market it and get it out there and distribute it. What do you think we do? This is everything that yeah. still happens. We do that. I mean, right. all of these, like, if they weren't relevant, then we wouldn't get a hundred demos a week. Right. Exactly. Like, there's a reason why, like, people still want it. And there's and that's because it's still relevant and it's still a service. It's still a thing that we do and we're happy to do and we want to do it. The transparency issue really kind of confounds me. Because it's, I get it because I've seen it. The thing you're talking about, we will license songs to films, TV, or compilations, or soundtracks, or whatever. I've seen it. And I've had friends who were on major labels and have, have seen what a statement looks like, and it's nuts. Mm-hmm. And it's, I get it. I totally get where somebody like David Byrne is coming from. But I hate how quickly it gets pulled up into, oh, well, that's just what labels do. Me too. And it's like, well, that's ridiculous. Yeah, and that's, and that's what we're we're doing here right. is we're trying to counteract that. And clearly that you guys do a great job of, I mean, it sounds like when you first have an artist, when you first are talking to an artist, you talk to them about this royalties process. 
Yeah, I mean, it comes up, and we try and bring it up every quarter when we send royalties just to make sure that nobody ever gets left out or that something gets sort of swept under the rug or, or not addressed, especially now because there's format changes. And so we'll have conversations every six months or nine months. It's like, okay, guys, well, so Apple Music is now a thing right. that's going to be happening, and here's here's what that means or does not mean to you. Right. And in most cases... Uh, you know, to be honest with you, most cases, artists are just like, this is the whole point of having a label so that I don't have to care or deal about this stuff. Like, do, do what you do and, and participate in the things that you know and think are right and on the right way and don't participate in the things that you don't. And I trust your judgment on that either way. And I have no reason to not trust you until something comes up that I find out was shady. And that's never happened. You know, right. and the it's not hard to be the transparency thing is crazy. I mean, it, and I guess it's crazy because it's not in my universe. The labels and the artists that I work with on a regular basis don't have these problems. Right. You know, I mean, the, the thing that and I keep coming back to David Byrne only because that's the current artist. And because he owns a label, one of his stories about it is that he owns a label and his distributor would not give him exact transparent statements of where the streaming royalties come from. His distributor told him to have their lawyer talk to his lawyer. Whoa. And I, it's just like, if that's true, <laughs> then you're just working with tons of the wrong people. Right. Get out, get away. There's lots of other distributors in the world. There's tons, like for somebody like that, there's no reason for you to be in that world anymore. Right. That's there's true. Absolutely no reason for you to be in that world. And you're probably not making as much money mm, as, as you, you could. could be. Come to the independent sector. Come, David Byrne. I just, stuff like that drives me crazy, you know, because <laughs> it's just like there's a whole world that is doing right by a lot of people, and and people are making careers out of it. Yeah, you know, like it's you don't have to get rich off of it, but we have artists, multiple artists, who own homes, and that is their only source of income. Absolutely. I mean, I'm pretty sure I send more quarterly to the Decemberists than Capital does. Probably. I would bet yeah, I do. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, and I don't think most artists in that situation who have jumped from an indie to a major, I don't think there are very many artists who have a different perspective on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's always going to be an example every decade or so, like a Modest Mouse, you know, or a Death Cab. I don't know. Like, those are examples where I could think, okay, yeah, maybe. I mean, you might be making more money on a major because you're so big. Right. And you get, you know, at that point, when you have a major single that's become a sort of a, a zeitgeist moment in pop culture, then you're in a different planet. You know, I mean, it's a totally different perspective. And I can't claim at that point that you're not getting paid a lot of money. Right. But, yeah. In a situation like a Decemberist or any artist that does that jump, you know, or like when Interpol went to Capital, I have to assume they made nowhere near as much money on the short period they were on Capital as they have on Matador. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and most artists, I think, are like that, unless you really shoot them in. You know, if you were selling a couple hundred thousand records on indie and then you jumped and you sold five million. Right. And then it's like, well, okay. You know, I mean, that was never going to happen on an indie. Right. But good for you. But it's like that's a one in a 50,000 chance. Absolutely. You know, that that sort of thing is going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, the transparency thing is weird to me because it just seems like really a no-brainer. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a little shocked that, like, we're having a conversation about it because right. I, I didn't realize that that was a thing. And that, that's probably just <laughs> me being naive. But I didn't realize that that was, like, a serious problem until right. until you had gotten in touch. And I was like, wait, I don't understand what, what she's asking. Like, she, <laughs> like, I, 
to talk about the transparency of it, like that's something I've literally never thought about. Right. I've never thought like, oh, we're doing this thing that other people aren't doing. And it's yeah. just like we. Uh, this is the only way that we know how to do it. You know. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, see, you're doing the right thing. You guys are one of the good guys. Excellent. You did it right. And on that note, Jeremy Devine is the founder and owner of Temporary Residence LTD. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us on The Future of What? Thank you so much for having me. My eyes roll around Out of my control I'm looking through shades of That's our show. The songs we played today were used by permission of the artists. You heard Cracker, Bonnie Stillwater, and Milagres. And of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. If you have a question you want answered on the show, please email us at thefutureofwhatshow at gmail.com. Our episodes are archived at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Our program was engineered by Reed Harvey and is produced by John Sepulveda and Will Watts. Thanks to Digital One Studios in Portland. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Bye.